I'm Teresa Au, and this is In the Making, Adobe's podcast about the real work and people who make up the creator economy. Before I introduce my guest this week, I want to take a moment to thank all of you for listening to our very first season. And in an effort to get to know you better, we put together a very brief survey. We'd love to hear from you as we plan season two. And to thank you for your time and thoughts, we will be giving away two 12-month memberships to Creative Cloud, which includes access to Adobe Express Premium, our lightweight tool for creatives and small business owners. You'll find full details and the survey link in the show notes. Now on to our show. This is the final episode for the first season of In the Making, and we're going out with a bang. I am so incredibly honored to introduce our final guest, the esteemed Chris Doe. Chris is an Emmy Award-winning designer and director and the CEO and founder of The Future, an online education platform with the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. In his near 30-year career, Chris has served on boards for organizations such as the Society for the Promotion of Japanese Animation, AIGA Los Angeles, and the Emmy's Motion and Title Design Peer Group. Chris has taught sequential design for over 15 years at Art Center College of Design as well as Otis College of Art and Design. He has lectured at universities and conferences worldwide, including Adobe Max. That's where he and I met in October. His nearly 1 million Instagram followers rely on him for his practical and inspirational takes on the art of business and the business of art. Welcome. To end the making, Chris, I am so grateful to have you here with us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. People listening might not actually know about the future and what it's about. What is the future and how is the future making education equitable for students and teachers? The future is an experiment on a big idea that I have, which is here, at least in America, good education is very expensive. And so it's oftentimes the avenue for people who have means, who have access, who were raised by the right parents with the right affluence. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And and so this bothers me because I'm a refugee from Vietnam. And when I came here with my parents, we didn't have a lot of things. And I don't know how it is I was able to navigate a public school system, but I'm here and I feel this incredible debt that I need to repay. So what I want to do is to be able to take the most powerful lessons I've learned in business and life and in design to be able to distill it down in a way that's scalable, infinitely scalable, so that it becomes accessible. So if we can democratize education, then maybe we give access to more people to empower them to change their lives and the lives of the people they care about. I think it started out as an experiment, but now it's just a tool and something that people rely on. And thank you so much for doing that for for people. You started teaching, I think, because a friend of yours was a teacher and she couldn't do it and asked you to fill in. Yeah. What you're talking about is my friend, former employee, Michelle Doherty, is teaching main title design. Why did you go all in on education? Like, was that something you're passionate about? This is a big breakthrough for me. That first year in teaching taught me more about myself, about my self-acceptance and self-confidence than anything I had done prior to that point in time, and it still continues to be the main driver of my confidence. 
a lot of times we question ourselves, like, what is it we know? Is anything I have interesting to anybody? And isn't this obvious to everyone? And it's not until you put yourself in front of students who ask you those questions, kind of like with this reckless abandon that they can ask you anything because it's safe because we're in school, that you have to search deep into your mind, your psyche and your soul to say, do I have an answer for this? And surprisingly, more often than not, at least for me, I did. And when I saw their eyes light up, I was thinking to myself, wow, maybe somebody else might want to know this stuff. This is pretty cool. And I started to rebuild my identity around this idea of being an educator, moving away from that of a graphic designer or even an entrepreneur. Like first and foremost, I think now I describe myself as an educator. Mm-hmm. I love that. So you've talked about the importance of learning to learn and learning to read in a meaningful way. What do you mean by that? Mm. Okay. So I don't think you'd get a lot of arguments from anybody to say that reading books is a good thing. Most people believe that. So if you read one book, it's better than you read zero books. But what's better than reading a book? Well, retaining. I ask people, hey, did you read that book? Like, yeah, yeah. Tell me two ideas you learned from it. And they can't tell you anything. I said, are you sure you read the book? So if you don't retain anything, what good is the book? So this is why I don't love it when people post like, I read 35 books this year. Well, tell me two things you've learned. That might be important. <laughs> There's one thing that's better than retention, which is application. So, okay, so I've read books. I remember what I've read. I've applied mm. what I've read. And yet there's still another level. So I've applied it, but can I teach it? Which is the fourth realm of mastery. So it's yeah. good to read. It's good to remember. It's good to apply. But it's even better to be able to teach those concepts to other people. So what you should be doing is you, you should be reading the book or learning a lesson or attending a workshop with the intention to teach that workshop or that lesson or that book. That's how I approach it. I want to talk business. So some people think of you as a branding, art direction, and design expert. You've actually not designed in a very long while. You have always had a passion and probably is a born entrepreneur. I heard that story about you buying candy from your uncle who yes. owns a store and you know you bought a wholesale and then you would sell it to kids for a markup. So you've always been an entrepreneur. When did you decide to really focus on the business aspect of design generating leads, negotiating or closing deals? Mm. Well, first in 1995, when I started my business, I realized a very valuable lesson that in design school, somebody talks about marketing, negotiation, sales and pricing. And so you're thrown to the wolves and you fend for yourself. Luckily, if you have enough talent and, and opportunities available, you win more than you lose. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth on the business aspect. It's part of being a designer or just part of being in the world, right? I think so. Help me understand the business models of your two different companies, Blind and The Future. Obviously, brand strategy, design consultancy is a different thing from The Future. Okay. First of all, I, I have to clarify something. I, I don't do any more design consultancy work unless it's through one of my coaching programs. Mm -hmm. In December 2018, my team looked at me and they said, shouldn't we focus all our energies on education and building an education company? And it was a radical idea at that time. And I said, okay, let's try. Let's go for it and see what happens. So we turned away all our client projects and we've been client free since December of 2018. Wow. Last year, I think we did four and a half million dollars in revenue, 
all from educational products, coaching and public speaking and sponsorships. What do you think made the future so successful? I think there was one very critical lesson that I learned early on. When Jose and I ran the school prior to the future, that's another company, we created a product and we created content to market the product. So we would release videos on YouTube with the intention of building awareness and creating desire for the product or solution that we made. And it didn't really garner the attention that we wanted and we couldn't figure out why sales weren't moving. The critical lesson that we learned, it was to create content to help people and through the act of goodwill and building that trust over time, they're going to want to buy whatever it is that you make. And that's a relationship that we have now with our community. Um, I can call them customers, but they're more communities. Yeah. And this word gets thrown around a lot. And um, I'm a little nervous even to introduce it into our dialogue. But there is a fervor, a loyalty that I'm not even sure I've earned or deserve that might be borderline a cult-like behavior that people have for us. Mm -hmm. And I think all brands in the 21st century that are worth billions of dollars have that exact same attribute. I think I sort of know why you have that high level of followership is because you're very engaged with the community. You write back. I don't know if you have someone that does that for you or it's you, but I see you're so active. You reply to their questions or you make comments about their comments. So I think that's a big reason why you can call it a community because it's a dialogue and not just a one-way conversation. Yeah. There are three people who work on my account, me, myself, and I. When you're dealing with me, not the company, when you're dealing with Chris on any social platform, 99.9% of the times, it's me. While we're on that subject, how much time do you devote to spending time engaging with the community, like answering DMs or emails? I want to tell you that it's two hours, but it's probably more like six hours every day. Wow. It's half of my waking time. I'm, I'm probably commenting, responding to, or dealing with somebody's question somewhere online. You mentioned that you came to the U.S. as a refugee from Vietnam, and I can relate. I'm, I wasn't a refugee, but we're both immigrants from another country. I've also noticed that you started recently sharing your origin story um, on social media. Why now? I, I will tell you a couple of like my own limiting beliefs around this in that I thought that no one's interested in hearing about my story. So I only tell people about my story when they ask. But when my students would do a studio tour, they already knew about me as a teacher and as a professional. So naturally, they would ask me lots of questions about me, my life, challenges that I've had, and I would share that. I think it's really important for us to give value to other people, to try to help them go from where they are to where they'd like to be. And in doing so, you build community, you build kinship, and you, you really create genuine value to others. And I want to share this with you and your audience, because... I saw Aaron Draplin, who I consider a professional friend. We've talked a couple of times. We've seen each other in multiple places. And I saw him get on stage, on the biggest stage for creatives, in front of 9,000-ish people, and do his thing. Yeah, at Adobe Max. So I started thinking to myself, next year, 2024, will be the tour in which I tell my story. And it's going to be a good story because I've already started writing the outline to it because there's lots of funny things. I think I'm going to call the story or the title of the talk, Design is a Gateway Drug. Oh. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to that. I'm just one of so many that can relate to your story of 
just coming to a new country, not knowing the language, not having a lot, like you mentioned, growing up. But look where you are today. And it's funny that you brought up Aaron Joplin because he was my guest on episode nine, and he is just an amazing individual human being. I have mad respect for his authenticity, and I have mad respect for you too. It's just mind-blowing, honestly. (laughs) You've said that you're an ambivert. And let me explain, because I think a lot of people don't know what that means. Ambiverts are people who fall somewhere in the middle of being an introvert and an extrovert. So ambiverts are flexible individuals who thrive both in solitude and social settings. How has being an ambivert hurt or helped you in your journey as a creator or a business owner? I'm an immigrant. Uh, English is not my first language. I had some difficulty to pronounce multisyllable words, polysyllabic words. And so when I was in school, I kept my mouth shut. Now, let's add to that. There are very few Asian people when I'm growing up in the, in the town in which I'm growing up. So I'm already feeling like, like an outsider because I would get into fights with people who would throw racial slurs at me or just to try to pick on me because I'm small. I'm small and skinny. And so I'm dealing with a lot of that stuff. I just want to get through class every day without a problem. I want to be able to walk to school and come back home without someone starting trouble with me. That was just my only desire. So of course, if you take a personality test in that state of mind, so naturally comes out, I'm an introvert. I'm like, I'm an introvert, right? And we have to just clarify for a lot of people, they think being an introvert is being shy and being an extrovert is being gregarious and very outgoing. It has nothing to do with that. It's about how you manage energy. So when you're around a lot of people, introverts need to take time alone and recharge. So you know you're an introvert when during COVID, you felt really happy and thriving because you were just at home, not having to drain your battery. And all the extroverts suffered mightily. They went into depression. They got into fights with people. They had cabin fever. They just couldn't handle it anymore because they need to be around people. Not to say that introversion is good or bad, nor extroversion is good or bad. It just is. So when I first started teaching... There was the mental load that was happening with me and managing the energies of 15 to 20 people in class. It would take me about a day and a half to recover. So it it wrecked me. But I noticed something uh, eventually just become a day, three quarters of a day, and then half a day, and then a quarter day. And then I could sort of be semi-normal the next day. And so I think there's a whole spectrum. And I think I must fit somewhere in the middle. So when I learn about this term ambivert, and if you think ambidextrous, the ability to use both hands, you're somewhere in that spectrum. I'm not sure where I am. But I know now when I'm around people that I feel like I have a connection to, even if we're complete strangers, I'm excited to see them. Yeah. Thank you for that wonderful explanation. But talking about how people recharge, how do you recharge besides spending time alone? And when you're alone, is it just doing nothing? I know as a loud introvert. I relish going home, getting on my sofa and with cozy blankets and reading a book or um, writing a letter, writing in my journal. How do you recharge, Chris? You're way more productive than I am. Let me just tell you that. (laughs) So I just got back literally last Friday from a two-week crazy six-city tour talk, right? So I get home and I'm on a different time zone mentally and physically. So the first thing I do is I just sit on the couch, turn on YouTube and whatever it is that I want to watch. And I just want to chill there with a blanket 
and I have a notepad near me, though it rarely gets used, just in case that idea pops up, I need time to process. Yeah. And I think what's happening is by not adding additional mental load or more processing, I'm able to, to reflect back on the last two weeks and I'm slowly decoding those experiences. And this is something that I encourage a lot of people to do, to be able to sit alone in our own thoughts. Yeah, it's so important to take breaks. Where do you find inspiration? Okay, this one's an easy one. I know, you probably get asked this all the time. Well, uh, it's not that, it's just that, because it's related to a question you asked earlier about how much time I spend on social responding to people. And I get inspired by people, and not the way that you think. This is not me like in a in a circle and we're like singing kumbaya and just playing drums and things like that. <laughs> I'm going to say this, it's going to come out rough. I get inspired by sometimes the stubbornness uh, and stupidity of people. I'll just say it like that. Because people don't understand this about me. I learn in the friction. So if I say always charge this price and they do, there's no friction. I'm like, no one wants to, to hear this. Okay, I guess it must be obvious to everybody. That's what I think. Uh-huh. But when people fight back at me, like, why would I want to charge more? This is robbery. It's unethical. I'm like, oh, yeah, let's go, baby. So that starts another thread. It starts another conversation. It starts another piece of content. And so oftentimes they come back with a lot of vitriol. But I just sit there and think, what is the real question underneath this? Do you need a hug? What, what's going on here? Because those emotions fire me up. And I'll tell you something. It is very difficult for me to write in a very zen state. I need something to spark me. That's why I'm in the comments all the time. Mm, I get it. That makes sense to me that you're getting inspired by the feedback that you're getting, which reminds me of this really clever thing you did. I saw that video that you did. It's called Christo is a Fraud. Yes. <laughs> and I thought, wow, he is so smart and clever to address this, right? At first I was like, why would he do yeah. that? But then I got it. You were able to yeah. really show why, like you debunked all of the things that he was thinking or feeling. Yeah. Can I give you some context to that video? Of course. Okay. So the guy that's on the show, his name is Mike Winkleman, but he happened to uh, get on a Zoom call with us and we're going to do some content. And he, he has a Midwestern accent. He looks a little like Bill Gates, just so you guys can visualize this. And he's like, Dow, what do we talk about? I'm like, I don't know. What's on your mind? What's, what's firing up your world? It's like, I know what. I don't feel this way, but you know, a lot of people think you're a snake oil salesman. I'm like, that's what we'll do the show about. Now, for those art historians in this group, who is Mike Winkleman? Mike Winkleman, also known as Beeple, sold one of his NFT projects for $69.3 million a couple of years ago. What? That is who is calling me a fraud. Yeah. What? So now you know, the, as they say, the rest of the story. <laughs> wow. Well, for my audience, if you haven't seen that video on YouTube, you got to find it. It's amazing. Just last week, I had this incredible, invaluable, amazing time with design students at one of our Adobe creative retreats. I asked the students, I go, hey, my last guest for the podcast is Chris. What questions do you have for him? This one has to do with what the future calls the one billion mission, which is, I quote, to teach one billion people how to make a living doing what they love without losing their soul, end quote. One of the students 
M want to give you a shout out and thank you for your question. Wanted me to ask you this. Do you think we can work in design without exploiting or being exploited? This is because M recently moved to San Francisco and is seeing all the homelessness and the high cost of living. M is curious what you think about that. First of all, thank you, M, for that question. It's a good question. I, I, I would love to have a conversation with you about this versus making assumptions about what you mean. So let's just unpack the operative word here, which is exploitation or exploit. Exploit sounds like you're taking advantage of something. That's a loaded word. And I'm, I'm wondering why M is asking this question. She could have said, take advantage of or find an opportunity in. But I think the, the word exploitation or exploitive sounds like it has a negative tint to it. But I, I just wanted to frame this like... In some utopian society, we exchange value with no mm -hmm. money. We just do things because of the spirit of generosity. And I'd like to live in that world, but that world doesn't seem to be present in the moment. And so we're always exchanging value. So this gets into the question of where leverage is. So for example, if you're a new student and you just graduated, you have a mountain of student debt. So now you need to pay down this debt and you need to make a living for yourself. So then you run into a business owner who has a need for what it is that you do. Since they don't have the education, the training, and the time, frankly, to do what it is they need, you are exploiting their, their, their lack of education or experience by charging them something that's fairly easy for you to do. And they are also exploiting you by giving you money, which comes easily mm. to them, which they make lots of, and they're going to give you that so that you can make the problem go away. So I see it as a mutual exploitation. Here's where it gets real interesting mm -hmm. is did you both go into with open arms and open mind saying we agree to this and if we both agree, how could we be exploiting each other? I don't know where the problem is. Here's another question. Should we take remote jobs or should we try to find an in-person opportunity when looking for that first job at a school? But on the flip side, I want to ask, do you think the university students or people can learn as much working at a firm when you're not in person with colleagues? I think rather than saying better or worse, I just think it's different. Different. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to walk the floor with a room full of designers and say, oh, let me sit down with you. I noticed you're doing this and there's a more efficient or effective way of doing that. And then they learn something and I could see it in their eyes. I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to do some hybrid version of this. Yeah, I think there are ways to work around this. And I think each person can use their own imagination and creativity to find a better way. We don't have to go to the old way because I think this is an opportunity to do it better and even more efficient than we used to. Yeah. So one final question from the group of students. You started your own firm very early in your career. So you didn't spend a lot of time working for other design firms. Yes. One of the student asked, what was the reason behind that? Uh, did you just want to not work for anyone <laughs> or did you especially feel you knew how to manage people and create a vision for the people to follow and want to be a part of? I'm going to give you the short answer and then I'm going to give you the real answer. Okay. Okay. The short answer is I'm impatient, I'm arrogant, and I'm unemployable. That's the short answer. <laughs> I'm impatient because I've always dreamt about having my own business since I was selling candy and getting in trouble all over school trying to make a, make a buck. I have that entrepreneur spirit. And mm -hmm. I'm arrogant because I think because I'm good, I could do anything. Like I live in that kind of abundance mindset. So I think I'm going to start a business and of course it's going to be successful. Of course I'm going to win awards. Of course I'm going to get the best projects. That's not true, but that's how I think of it. 
and I'm unemployable in that I went from working at an ad agency in a very corporate place to working at a punk rock music label and not finding myself in either one of these spaces. And so very shortly I quit. And I was thinking, I think I have to make my own company because this is not working. Now, I want to caveat by this, by in all the companies I've ever worked for, either full-time or freelance, I did my very best. And I have to say this, I think this is true. They loved me, but despite them liking me more than I like them, I had to do what was right for me. The long answer. I'm freelancing at this place called Novacom because at this point in time, Novacom was one of the hottest broadcast design shops in the world. And it was the congregation of some of the most talented designers and visual effects artists in one building. And here I am, still wet behind the ears, straight out of school, just messing up, but working there and them offering me a job. And then I get a message out of the blue from my uncle, my dad's younger brother. He said, since I've known you, you've always wanted to run a business. How would you like to start a design company? Let's go, baby. What you had me at design, you know, I'm in. And like, what are the terms? So he told me this. He said, my business partner, and my uncle's an attorney, my business partner and I, we create boutique hotels all over the world. And we would like to have a design company handle all our design and marketing. So not only would we be your partners mm-hmm. in this, we would just supply you with endless amounts of work. And this is a win, win, win. And I'm not talking about Vietnamese names here. It's W-I-N, okay? It's that kind of win. So I'm like, yes. Let's do this. They own 51% of the company, which in my immature 23-year-old mind, I had a hard time with. I'm like, why do you guys own more? I run the whole company. It's our money. We need control. So get this. I write up a business plan, which I know nothing about. I ask for $100,000 in a cash injection for them to buy the 51%. (laughs) We're sitting at the Western Bonaventure, I think, having dinner. And... Bob, the business partner, reaches in his coat jacket. It's either he's going to shoot me or something weird's going to happen. And he pulls out his checkbook. I'm like, what is happening? He writes a check for $5,000 on the spot to my name, tears it out and gives it to me, said, this is a good faith gesture. I'm 23 years old. I've never even seen $5,000 before. Wow. And for, for what? We don't even know. <laughs> They're just pre-agreeing to this whole thing. And I was like, this is amazing. So I run home. I'm like, I deposit the check in my account. It feels so good for it to be more than $100, right? And we start our business. Now, here's the weird thing. I start making calls to people I know. And and work is already coming in because in that short amount of time, which I was hopping from company to company, I created a bit of a reputation. So from the ad agency that gave me work, uh, from the punk rock music label, I was getting work. And from Novacom, I was getting work as a freelance creative. And I just started. Now, the story has some interesting twist to it. We're a couple of months in. Yeah. I'm cash flow positive. I already have a few part-time employees. And I was thinking, where's the rest of the $95,000? Where's this guaranteed work? And I was getting upset because I'm arrogant and impatient. I've established that part. Impatient, yes. I'm arrogant and impatient. I called my uncle. I'm a little upset. I said, uncle, what is going on? Why don't we have money? And he said, we're having some issues with one of our properties overseas. This is small fish for us. He goes, we will breach the contract. You keep that good faith gesture. I felt really guilty. It was like, I didn't do anything. He goes, that's how business is done, kid. I changed the company name and we, we start again. And it's, it's a very powerful lesson in this. And that a lot of us are waiting for some sign 
for a permission slip mm -hmm. from someone or something so that we can go into business for ourselves. All I needed was an imaginary $100,000 coming to me and an endless supply of work, which never came, by the way. I never needed the $5,000. I never needed that work because from day one, we were running a profitable company and we're off to the races. I just needed the courage to believe in myself. And that's a lesson I would like everyone to really take to heart. Yeah, I love that story. Actually, it's not a story. It's part of your journey. And it reminds me that no matter where you are, you got to show up and build that reputation, like you said. Just because you know you're not going to be there forever, it's like a stepping stone kind of job, or you hate it, or you're bored, you still got to show up and do the work. Yes. And my final question for all my guests is, what is your one word for 2024? One word that's going to guide you or inspire you? My, my word for 2024 is rebuild. What are you going to rebuild? Everything. Yeah, because wow. I, I've learned this from my previous business coach. And it can be summed up this way. And essentially, it's what got you here won't get you there. You can't keep using the playbook from the past to get you to some future that's way beyond where you are. So everything we did got us to the first million. Everything that we did then had to be thrown away to get us to the three million. And I'm determined to build a $10 million company. So I know we have to reinvent, we have to rebuild because... Everything that we've done to this point will keep us here and I need to let go. So it's one of these things that I, I, I try to teach people is the art of detachment. You got to let go of your old ideas about your old identities and processes. If you want to innovate, you have to break things and it's going to be really messy. And it's going to be really ugly. But in order for us to become a $100 million company, we need to be a $10 million company first. And so I got to break everything to rebuild. I learned so much. Thank you so much, Chris. I, I don't even know how to thank you for saying yes to supporting this podcast, supporting me. I really, really so appreciate it. I'm going to get all teary. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I want to say something. And the reason why I said yes to you so fast, there are two companies that have uh, are part of my history, my life. One is Apple and the other is Adobe. One makes the hard work to empower my dreams. The other gives me the tools to articulate those dreams. And I have a deep, uh, maybe lopsided affection and connection to these two companies. What a great way to end the season. Really, thank you. It was truly an honor and such a privilege for me to speak with Chris today. I took away so much from our conversation and I hope you did as well. As always, here are just some of my key takeaways. One, let go of the way you have done things in the past. It might be scary to let go of what's been successful for you in order to pursue bigger goals, but it's necessary to try new ways of doing things. What got you here might not work to get you where you want to go. Two, Chris had the courage to start his own business once someone else asked him to do it. Don't underestimate the power of believing in yourself. You don't have to wait for outside validation to do something big. Three, do the work to know yourself and play to your strengths while being honest about your limitations, whether that means you work best with a team or as a solo operator. Own it, because that is what is going to make you thrive. You can follow Chris on social media at the Christo, that's spelled T-H-E-C-H-R-I-S-D-O. And you'll also find the links in our show notes. This is In The Making, and I'm Teresa Au, your host and executive producer. 
Our producers for the show are Chrysanthi Tenetence and Lisa Campbell, and our sound editor is Amy Ferrati. We want to hear from you as we wind down our very first season. We're giving away two 12-month memberships to Adobe Creative Cloud to respondents to our podcast survey, which you'll find the link for in our show notes. Follow us at Adobe Live on Instagram and on YouTube to keep in touch between episodes. And please email us at inthemaking at adobe.com with any of your feedback, questions, and suggestions. A very heartfelt thank you for listening to season one, and we'll see you all back here in 2024.